we, um, New York City would frequently on the Van Wick Expressway would drive by Shea Stadium, the former stadium for the New York Mets, who, amazingly, are doing well this season. Um, And there by Shea Stadium in the borough of Queens um, would be this globe. Um, Maybe some of you have seen it here. Um, Get my uh, remote not working. Have you ever seen that? You know what that is? That was in 1964, 1965, a World's Fair. It was the third major World's Fair to be held in New York City. Um, They hailed it as, quote, the universal and international exposition. The fair's theme was peace through understanding. Uh, It was dedicated to, quote, man's achievement on a shrinking globe and an expanding universe. Um, American companies kind of dominated that uh, exposition as exhibitors. There was that, that globe right there, 12 stories high, uh, stainless steel model of the Earth called the Unisphere. It ran for uh, two six-month sessions, and <clears throat> um, adult prices, admission ticket was $2. Uh, that would be about $15 today, so it's still pretty, pretty, pretty reasonable. And um, it was really a showcase of... Uh, mid-20th century American culture and technology. The space age had kind of dawned. And it was very well represented there at the fair. Um, 51 million people attended that fair. Though they had hoped for about 70 million. And it was a real big uh, event, of course, for for New York City. And it it showed a lot of new things. Uh, Computers really burst onto the scene there with the big mainframes and uh, and displays, uh, teletype machines, punch cards that you'd put in the computers, uh, even telephone modems uh, in an era when uh, computer equipment was kept back at offices away from the public. They had it now in the public for the public to see. Of course, that was way before the Internet and the home computers and in each home. There are some, a variety of interesting things that were, were shared there. Uh, each state had a representation. Countries had representations. Um, Pepsi presented Walt Disney's It's a Small World, which was a salute to UNICEF, the world's children. Animated dolls and animals <clears throat> and unity all around the world. Uh, General Electric GE sponsored Progress Land. Progress Land where they, they seated an audience in a revolving auditorium called the Carousel of Progress. And um, uh, with a song, There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. They even had a, a, a little um, brief plasma explosion of, of, of a controlled nuclear fusion there. And uh, it was kind of a crack that was loud enough uh, to be heard in the neighboring uh, pavilion. Four presented Ford's Magic Skyway. Um, it was 50 actual Ford vehicles without motors that were on a track. And uh, they were uh, what would be called the people mover system. And you would enter the vehicles on a platform and they moved slowly along the track and you could see all kinds of different things throughout the fair. The mechanical dinosaurs and cavemen. Um, and a variety of things. It was a, it was a huge event. Um, in the Illinois Pavilion, they had a life like Abraham Lincoln, um, uh, even with a voice. 
recorded. He would recite some of his famous speeches. And uh, really, it was an event to celebrate the future. It was a, it was a hope. It was a longing for something that would uh, that was to come. It was a celebration that this was a new world, um, the, the the dawn of age, uh, space exploration to come, and, um, and and it was a hope for for international peace. And we look back at those things and think of how the world has gone since then. And, Many of those hopes were, 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 were put in the, law, in the wrong places. And, but in Micah chapter 4, <clears throat> Micah really gives us real hope here. He foretells the coming kingdom, which is announced by all, almost all the writing prophets. And, and I've mentioned this before, but Micah is like a mini book of Isaiah. Many of the same concepts and themes are just kind of shrunk and, and, uh, and consolidated in the book of Micah in the seven chapters. But in chapter 4, he begins to speak of the coming kingdom in verses 1 through 8. Then in verses 9 through 15 of Micah 4, he talks about the events that are going to precede this kingdom. And then in chapter 5, verses 2 through 15, he talks about the king who who will establish it in probably the most famous verses uh, in the book of Micah that we quote every Christmas. Now, what... This book is set in, or this part of the letter is set in, as I mentioned, was in chapter 3 and verse 12, where God has pronounced judgment on, 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 on Israel. And he says, Therefore shall Zion, that's talking about Jerusalem, for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house is the high places of the forest. What he's saying is the temple is going to be destroyed. But he doesn't leave them there because in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, but. So he elevates their hopes. He elevates their, their, uh, their, their, their trust in, in the temple in the future that would be restored to an even grander style. It would become the worship center, the learning center for all the nations. And so he has really talked about Jerusalem and the temple being leveled and degraded. In the very next verse, he talks about it being exalted to the highest glory. You know, there's many places in Scripture that describe our condition without God. And then says, but God. Here it doesn't say, but God, but it says, in the last days will come to pass, the mouth of the house of the Lord shall be established. God is working this. God is going to make it happen. And so Micah chapter 4 here um, will tell us about the greatness of the kingdom and the goal of the kingdom. The greatness of the kingdom and the goal of the kingdom. I'd like you to look in verse 1. Micah says this, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. Micah is really saying this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all. He says it will be the most important place in the whole earth. It will be raised above the other hills. This Mount Zion, that hill there in Jerusalem, where the millennial temple will be built. You can read a little bit more about that in more detail in Ezekiel chapter 40 through verse 43. It will become chief among the mountains. In other words, that temple site will be the center of the millennial government, the place where Christ will rule. 
And that's, that's very much in contrast to what he said in the previous verse, in chapter 3, verse 12. So there's a greatness, the highest place of all, the most important place in the earth, raised above the other hills. There's the greatness of the kingdom. And why is it so great? Well, there's first of all, if you have an outline in your bulletin, there is a supreme attraction. A supreme attraction. Look what he says. The end of verse 1 he says, And people shall flow unto it. Verse 2. And many nations shall come, and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's a supreme attraction. People from all over the world will... The, 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 Micah uses the word flow. And it is. It's a picture of a, of a stream, a river. Just being carried along in this, in, this, in this rushing river of people. There's a supreme attraction. People from all over the world, many nations, will come and say, Let's go to the mountain of the Lord, a house of Jacob's God. They'll realize the place, the unique place that Israel occupies in God's plan. They won't think of her as a small, insignificant nation, an irritation to the world. They'll be attracted to her. Many peoples will travel to Jerusalem. If you look with me to chapter 7 and verse 12, Micah says, In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities. And from the fortress even to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. People will travel to Jerusalem in her temple. They're going to stream, they're going to flow there. Flow of people back toward the center of the earth. You understand Jerusalem is almost literally the geographical center of the earth. They're going to flow there. There's a supreme attraction, like a magnet. But secondly, under the greatness of the kingdom, there's not only a supreme attraction, there are supreme articles. There are supreme articles. Uh, there, are, there, is, there is the word of God, the article of the word of God in his law, that will be the attraction. Look what it says in verse 2. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll teach us his ways. He'll walk in his paths. His teaching will go out from Zion. His word's going to go out from Jerusalem. He'll teach us his ways, his plans in ruling the world, the ways in which men should walk in order to please him. And so it's not just God there in, in, the, in the temple in the millennium uh, 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 spouting his word out, but it's the desire that the nations would live their walk in accordance with it. Walk in accordance with it. Now, some have <clears throat> um, tried to spiritualize this verse and and, uh, and refer to Jerusalem as not referring to that earthly city in Jerusalem, but uh, the the uh, a, this uh, spiritual center. But it's to me that's taking it out of context because in chapter three and verse twelve we're talking we're talking about Jerusalem as a literal place being destroyed and leveled. And just a couple verses later, we're still talking about a literal place of Jerusalem. And so, the visions of destruction are talking about a literal city of Jerusalem. These visions of restoration are talking about a literal city of Jerusalem, in my understanding of it. 
Not only is there a supreme uh, attraction in supreme articles, but there is a supreme armistice. Armistice. There's peace. There's peace. There's a treaty, an armistice. Verse 3. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Uh, if you go to the what used to be the U.S. Customs House in New York City, it's not far from Battery Park where you take the ferry to the Statue of Liberty. On the uh, one of the stones of that building emblazoned into that stone is this very verse. Um, it, it's one of the one of the better known verses to the secular world in the Bible about beating swords into farming instruments to turn weapons of warfare into agricultural uses. And really, what what he's saying here is there will be universal peace in this millennial kingdom. Universal peace. Instead of nations going war to war against another, the Lord himself is going to judge among them. He's going to settle their differences. Listen, there will be no, no more West Points. There will be no more naval academies in Annapolis. There will be no, no need for an Air Force Academy in Colorado. There won't be necessary. Instead of learning the art of war, these nations will learn the art of peace. Because they will be under the submission of the Lord, Messiah, peace will happen. So there's a supreme armistice, a peace treaty. Peace in this millennial kingdom. Fourthly, under the greatness of this kingdom, and the reason this kingdom is great, there is a supreme assurance, a supreme assurance, verse 4. Instead of warring, verse 4 says, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of armies, hath spoken. Picture of a vine and a fig tree. It's an interesting uh, picture there. It's a picture of peace, security, prosperity. In 1 Kings 4 and 5, when Solomon brings the kingdom of Israel to its pinnacle, one of the marks of their prosperity and success was every man had his own vine, grapes, and his own fig tree. And God is restoring that, but this time, it's not under a fallen king like Solomon who spiraled out of control very quickly. This is under a perfect queen, King Jesus himself. So that vine and fig tree picture the security, the prosperity, the contentment in God's kingdom. Uh, the, the, the millennial conditions. And how different that, that is compared to our day, isn't it? Wars, rumors of wars, droughts, earthquakes, etc. Nations rising against other nations. We have organizations like the United Nations trying to establish world peace. Problem is they're trying to do it in a world of sin and fallenness, depravity. But the Prince of Peace, according to Micah chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, will establish world peace. World peace. And why will this happen? Well, here's the supreme assurance. Because the Lord of Heaven's armies has made this promise. The Lord of Heaven's armies has made this promise. It won't come because uh, there are is, there is some uh, ingenious ways of diplomacy that were meted out. No. 
We become because God said it will come. Because God will make sure that it happens. So there is a supreme assurance. The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabiah, in our hymn today, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, you sang about Lord Sabaoth as his name, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The Lord rules over all. And I want you to understand this morning that the kingdom of God here in this millennial reign is great because the one who is reigning is great. And the one who is reign, who is, that is reigning, who is great, is Jesus, the son of David. Jesus is great. Jesus is great because Jesus is in control here. He's in control. You know what that tells me? In my everyday life, if this is what Jesus will do, Jesus is in control today. I don't have to be in control of other people. I don't have to be in control of all my circumstances. Maybe maybe some of you feel overworked. Or maybe you really battle with fear and anxiety. Maybe you're emotionally exhausted because... You've forgotten that Jesus is great. He's in control. He's great. And maybe when you don't feel like things are in your control, you, it feels insecure, like your life is wasted, or, or, or you become irritated with others. But I want to tell you, listen. Jesus is great, so you don't have to be in control of everything. Because you can't be in control of everything. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, He says, look at the birds of the air, right? Are they worried? Look at the lilies of the field. Are they worried about what they're going to look like? He says, my Father takes care of them. And then He says this, but you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all the necessary things that you need. All these things shall be added unto you. And maybe this morning you need to be reminded that this morning that Jesus' future kingdom is great because Jesus is great. He will never leave or forsake you. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be rattled when things are out of your control because He has a plan. And His plan will succeed. In fact, in Romans 8, verse 28, He says, All things do work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the call, according to His purpose. So He has a purpose. He's working out. He is with you. He will strengthen you. He will uphold you in the right hand of His righteousness. And you can find rest in Him. This kingdom in Micah 4 is great because Jesus is great. And all He can and He controls everything. That's why you can find your security in Him. He is moving this world to a purpose. So you can be at peace with that. Great peace, he says, I will leave you to his apostles. He leaves great peace. The peace comes in the person of the Holy Spirit, by the way. He's called the Comforter. And why would he be called the Comforter if we didn't need to be comforted? So there's a greatness in this kingdom. Secondly, in the remaining verses... There is a goal of the kingdom. God doesn't have a, just have, is not just going to have a kingdom just to have one. There's a reason. There's a purpose. There's a goal of the kingdom. Verse 5. For 
All people will walk, everyone, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. The idea there is it is not, and it's, it, it kind of gives this sense here, but uh, in, the, in the original, the idea is not people are just going to worship their gods and we're going to worship God there in the millennium. No, it's the idea of this. Though the nations around us will follow their idols, we will follow the Lord our God forever and ever. So there's a contrast here. Not a both and, but a contrast. Okay? So there's a goal of the kingdom. And it is to follow the Lord our God forever and ever. They needed to understand. First of all, I want you to see that there is a supreme abandonment. Under the goal of the kingdom, there is a supreme abandonment. We are to leave idols, Micah tells the people, and we are to follow the Lord our God. We are to not value or treasure anything outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a supreme abandonment. Jesus said it this way in the Gospels. Many men will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. There is an abandonment of anything that tries to raise its head in the place of God. There's a supreme abandonment. But in replacement of that, there is a supreme affection. A supreme affection. We will follow the Lord our God forever and ever, is the idea. We'll walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And that idea of walking in the name of the Lord our God, I mean, what does that mean? How do I walk in the name of the Lord my God? How do I do that? That just seems so abstract, doesn't it? But what it means is walking in the strength of God's character. God's names are His characters, attributes. It's to walk in the strength of God. To walk in in how the nature of God is displayed in your life. If you look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and verse 45. 1 Samuel 17. I think you can see how this concept is, is used earlier. This is when David fights Goliath. And this is David's words to that Philistine Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, 45. David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. How does David come? But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day the Lord deliver thee into my hand. David was strengthened in who God was. He was strengthened in who God was. Proverbs says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. You can run into it and be saved. You can rest securely in who God is. His names, his character, his attributes. And so when Micah says... um, We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We're walking in the strength of God. The name of the Lord is character, who He is. We're, we have a relationship with Him. We're living in reliance in His strength. Reliance in His power, His might. And it displays who He is to us. Now, in this goal of the kingdom, where they are to abandon false gods, they were to show supreme affection to their God, Yahweh, why can they follow Yahweh? I mean, is there any precedent? Why could they follow Yahweh? 
they could follow him because in Israel's history it proves over and over that he's faithful. He's good. They can follow Yahweh, the I Am, because he is good. It's, say, well, there's got to be more to it. That's, he's good. That just sounds so trite, so cliche. God's good. Listen, they didn't have to look elsewhere for their satisfaction. I'll tell you, and neither do you and I. Neither do you and I. Jesus, listen, Jesus is the Father's greatest gift to us. He's the Father's greatest gift. And He is enough. He is the God, Paul says in Corinthians, of all comfort. His love is better than life itself. He completely satisfies. He restoreth my soul. You can rest in His warm embrace. He invites you to come to Him for rest. You can abide in His love. He's provided justification by faith. In other words, His perfect record of righteousness credited to your behalf through trust in Him. And through that, you have peace with Him. Jesus is good. So the goal of the kingdom was, was, was supreme affection for the King. Who's reigning in this kingdom? Jesus. And not only that, look at verse 6. Thirdly, there's a supreme awakening. A supreme awakening. Verse 6 says, In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her, will I assemble her that halted, or is lame. And I will gather her that is driven out, or exiled, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off, a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in the Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. Now Micah doesn't know when this regathering is going to be that's promised here. In fact, he might have supposed it was when the coming uh, Babylon exile was over, then the kingdom would begin. And from books of the Bible written later, we see it's pretty clear that God's millennial kingdom didn't come with the return of the Babylonian exile. Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. None of what is talked about here has happened. In, in contrast with Israel's weaknesses, spiritually and morally in Micah's day, I mean spiritually they were lame, he's talking about. They've been driven away because of their sin into exile. But this returned remnant, God would make into a strong nation. He's going to rule over them all in Mount Zion forever. So there's a supreme awakening. What's interesting is this. It's not like the returning people will automatically be making up the remnant. But the idea is they are made into a remnant of people. Made into. He says, in that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her? Will I well, I, it's a word that means make into. I will make her into a remnant. And Micah uh, is understanding that the remnant was more than just a few people that God's just going to do something with. No. It was, it was God's grace and he would, his, his power that is going to make this happen. It's an act of grace. It takes people who are lame, people who are exiles... And, 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 and he forms them again, reforms them, and he, he gives them the, me- the, the, the blessings of the messianic age. Millennium. And you know what this means? 
This means that Jesus is gracious. He's gracious. He invites these people to himself because he is gracious. Everything that is so wonderful and great and and, and moving toward a purpose is true because who Jesus is. Who is the one reigning in this millennium? He's gracious. And you know, he's gracious to us. He gave up his authority. He gave up his power to go to a cross. To secure us in his realm. Colossians says he's translated us into his everlasting kingdom. I wonder, has your security, your confidence, your hope, has it been been depending on when you measure up in your eyes? So when you measure up, you're flying high. You're doing well. And you get prideful. And then when you mess up or you do poorly, it just plummets. Your confidence, your security, according to your measurements or others' approval. You work hard for other people's respect. You fear humiliation. And you've forgotten that Jesus is gracious. He's gracious. Jesus, in this passage here, will do what is absolutely necessary to bring at people who are lame, who are exiles, uh, who are weak, and who will restore them into a strong nation in Micah's prophecy. And folks, in our time, Jesus has already done for us everything that's needed for a right standing and acceptance with Him through the cross. He said, it is finished. Jesus paid it all. It's all done. He switched our shame and our sin to Him on the cross, and then He gives His perfect record of righteousness to us through trust in Him. In Christ, you could be no more accepted to the Father God than Jesus the Son already is. You are His beloved Son and daughter. You have the same rights of sonship that Jesus enjoys with His Father. And as Jesus, the Son of God, He is gracious because He has given all of Himself to us. He does what is necessary to bring the weak the lame, the afflicted, to himself. So there's a supreme awakening. And finally, letter D, there is a supreme authority. A supreme authority. Look, the end of verse 7. And the Lord shall reign over them and Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. He's saying, I, the Lord, I will reign from Jerusalem, I will be your king forever, and you, Jerusalem, you'll be the citadel of God's people again. In contrast to the leveling again in chapter 3, verse 12, your, your royal might, your power will be restored again. The kingship will be restored to my precious Jerusalem. My treasured Jerusalem, the daughters of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and God's government center there will be preeminent. He pictures Jerusalem 
like a shepherd would watch over his flock. Or a farmer would stand on the edge of a field looking over his crops and wondering how best to help that plant. Or looking at that one saying, that one's doing pretty well. There's care there. There's the watchtower of the flock. And Jerusalem's dominion is going to be restored to, to her since Messiah himself is going to reign from Zion. That nation's not going to be under the domination of others anymore. It tells us that Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. He will restore the barren wasteland of his judgment upon Israel for their sins to a great kingdom. He'll take ruins and reign. But Jesus is great. His coming kingdom is great because Jesus is great. And in the here and now, since he is great, I don't have to be in control of everything. Of other people or all my circumstances. But Jesus is good. There's a life of goodness and joy in this kingdom because Jesus is good. And for me, I don't have to look for other places for my joy. He's the Father's greatest gift. And he's enough. Jesus is the reason I can say no to sin and temptation. And yes to Jesus and the Holy Spirit's control in my life. His work in me to bring me closer and closer to Jesus and the Father. But Jesus is glorious and gracious. He reigns. There's no one that's above that. He's part of the triune God. You don't, there's nothing out there where he would cease to be God, right? What he will accomplish in restoring Jerusalem in that day will be because of his glory and grace. It will happen because he promised it. And for us, he proved everything that ever needed to be proven at the cross. That's what the end of Romans 8 is all about. All that he is in his glory and grace has been given to us. So I'm fighting anger, or I'm fighting boredom, or I'm fighting discontentment, or worry, fear, or insecurity. I can leave it with Jesus. Because He's gracious, He's good, He's great, and He's glorious. There's a greatness to this kingdom, but there's a goal He's moving it toward, and it is the supremacy of Jesus Himself. And we can say, certainly today, that Jesus exalts himself, desires to be Lord in our lives today. Certainly there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But Jesus is glorified when that day is today. And we surrender. And we pursue him as the great treasure of our lives. Let's pray.